Well, we're joined today by Jan Rosnow, a Principal and European Programme Director with the Regulatory Assistance Project. And I'm not going to embarrass Jan by going through his CV, but it's it's extraordinary stuff. Uh, he, he he seems to, uh, his, his spheres of influence include everything from the International Energy Agency uh, to the European Commission, the European Parliament, U.S. Agency for International Development, and and, and I could go on. Um, and he has a particular interest, I think it's fair to say, in uh, in energy efficiency and in working with uh, with the market, with with including the the energy markets, to work at how to drive the kind of change that we need to achieve. So, uh, well, for starts, Jan, great to meet you. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. So. Um, uh, you'll be using those words in a while, but uh, Jan, your um, your track record shows that you should be really extremely well placed to make recommendations about how to save the world from the the, the climate dystopia that's keeping myself and many others uh, uh, awake at night. Um, if you were a despot, a benevolent green despot, what what kind of actions would you be seeking to take? to reduce emissions? If you didn't have you know, pesky things like democracy to contend with, and I, I say that as a, as, a, as, a, as a Democrat, a reluctant Democrat. Well, um, that's a tough question. I mean, it, I mean ideally you would, you would um, uh, look at each of the sectors and identify uh, what the key technologies are, the key solutions are for full decarbonization. Uh, luckily, we do have that information. You know, there have been numerous studies that have identified the key pathways for decarbonization. Uh, we, we know what technologies are needed. They already exist today. Um, the question is all about implementation and, and you know, getting them rolled out. And, and that's where I think often we're just not going fast enough. So sectors that have done quite well um, in Europe, at least, uh, is the power sector. Um, and we now see the transport sector moving as well um, you know, with electrification of transport. Um, we clearly see emissions coming down, I think. Um, but the building sector and the industry sector um, still need um, a lot of work. And, and that's where I would focus. Um, but how, how do you persuade um, you know, millions of people to, to change the way how they heat their homes? Um, uh, you know, that, that's going to be a key challenge um, in, in all of this. And, and, and uh, if I was a despot <laughs> uh, who could uh, just um, mandate um, some of this, then I think that, yeah, it, would, it would certainly be um, uh, very significant step um, to no longer install fossil heating systems um, in the next years. Okay, um, uh, and I yeah, I have to restrain. I mean, no, I, I, I suppose I can have all the autocratic tendencies uh, in in the world, but no one, no, you know, no one's going to humour them anyway. So, so maybe it's a moot point. Um, but uh, from my perspective, but um, uh, uh, it's interesting that you you know just to pick up on the fact that you're you're uh, you're making it clear that. The technologies that we need are already out there. There is a tendency, I think, at times, um, in the way we, we we talk about these subjects, and and perhaps it's perhaps it's the way we're used to consuming information through through media, for instance, as, as consumers, um, to to always be looking for you know the silver bullet or the next the new thing, the new shiny thing. Whereas um, what you're saying is really that um, you know it's not a question so much of 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 thinking in those terms that we we actually perhaps already know many of the answers and it's just a question of getting on with it. Yeah, I think I mean it's been like this for for many years and there's always been a tendency 
um, you know, to sort of get very excited about new technologies that don't exist yet or can't deliver yet um, because they can offer an easy way out, right? If you could just flick a switch and suddenly the problem is solved, then wouldn't that be great? You don't have to do all the difficult implementation. Unfortunately, um, yeah, this kind of falls squarely into the category of what I would call magical thinking. Um, you know, it's kind of your hope for a solution that doesn't quite yet exist to somehow come through and magically solve the problem. Uh, but it just doesn't happen. I mean, the track record on a number of technologies that fall into this category shows that um, we can't uh, build a strategy around that. Yeah, it's highly risky to do that. Uh, and often those technologies that already exist, once you scale, scale them up, you actually get surprised by the cost reductions. Uh, we, we've seen that with batteries, for example, over the last decade, but also photovoltaics and wind, now electric vehicles. So we can really see how once you start deploying existing technologies, they become a lot better, more efficient and a lot cheaper. Um, so I think rather than just hoping for something new to come along to solve this, we just need to get on with the job at hand and we know how to do it. Fantastic. Uh, would you say uh, that because some of the rhetoric, you know, looking at some of the political commitments that are starting to come out in advance of COP26 in some countries um, uh, seems to be heavily centered on things like, say, say, for instance, fuel switching from fossil fuel boilers to heat pumps. Now, I say that I would be an advocate for, for heat pumps myself. Um, uh, but like, you know, uh, like, like nearly anything that we advocate for, there, there are caveats attached. Um, and uh, I suppose the question that, that springs to mind, whether it's a question of, of you know, decarbonizing electricity through, through, uh, through the growth of renewables, for instance, uh, uh, or uh, fuel switching, um, is it good enough uh, in the case of buildings to just wholesale switch to renewables or do we need to do more? No, it isn't. I mean, I think it's not just um, something that applies to the building sector. It's the same applies to the transport sector. Uh, you know, we, we have to also look at um, the need for uh, energy in the first place. Um, so if you, you continue to build very large vehicles um, that are not used very often, um, then um, yeah, they're not going to be that efficient. Um, and you could actually think about other options, reducing vehicle ownership, reducing journeys uh, in, in private um, cars, um, which would um, you know, not require any energy um, uh, and, and be much a much better way, um, avoiding the need for um, you know, using renewable electricity. And the same, of course, applies to buildings. You know, if, if, we, if we do not upgrade very leaky and inefficient buildings, of which certainly the UK has, has, has many, uh, but there are also many inefficient buildings in other countries um, across Europe and, and, and globally, of course. Then we have to continue to um, use uh, you know, too much energy um, to keep warm uh, or increasingly also cool those buildings um, with, with um, you know, warmer summers um, and heat waves coming along, becoming more frequent. Uh, and clearly that, that is um, uh, something that is, is, is not ideal from a systems perspective because you then have to uh, also design an energy system around it that provides um, that, that amount of energy. And if you could reduce that um, you know, by 30, 40%, uh, suddenly the, the problem that you're trying to solve becomes a lot smaller. You know, the problem that you're trying to address is much easier to solve because you don't need to decarbonize as much energy as you have to decarbonize if you don't do anything about energy demand. Uh, so it absolutely is critical, I think. And this idea that you can just switch uh, from one fuel to another. Again, it just strikes me as incredibly simplistic um, and uh, and also unrealistic. Um, you know, when you look at the amount of 
of renewables that we would need to build out um, to do that. Um, and also the other demands from other sectors, uh, it's just going to be very hard to do that within the time that we have left. Uh, and then finally, you know, any credible authoritative study that has been done um, on how do we decarbonize the building sector uh, most cost effectively, whether that's from the International Energy Agency, the European Commission, um, universities, you know, all of these studies identify energy demand reduction as a very critical step, in some cases, the most important component of all of the things that you can do. Um, so that's that's absolutely necessary and, 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 and much needed. And we can't credibly decarbonize the building sector um, without you know, addressing energy efficiency. Does, does it frustrate you? Because that, um, that uh, I mean, I certainly have the sense, I don't know whether you share this, that um, whether in media coverage or in uh, in, in some of the, the, the kind of political uh, rhetoric around the subject, that message, I think, very often does not come through. Uh, the, you know, the, the sense that that we are looking really at quite profound changes and hopefully with many, many co-benefits of different kinds, whether it's comfort, health, improved asset value, all this kind of stuff. Um, um, but does it trouble you that uh, that this message doesn't always come through or do you, or do you, or do you agree with that? Do you, do you think... Uh, you know, as we head into COP26, uh, do you think energy efficiency is getting the recognition that, that, that it needs to or that renewables, uh, you know, sometimes uh, uh, attracts, too, you know, too much of the limelight? No, it, it, it still doesn't get enough attention, I think. And energy efficiency has always been seen a bit like the, the stepchild, um, the naughty stepchild of the energy transition yeah, it, people always talk about it and mention it, but it's 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 not sort of up there with, you know, the discussion around um, switching away from coal uh, to renewables and um, electrification, and hydrogen. You know, energy efficiency always seems to be playing in a different league, even though every everybody agrees that it's very important. Um, but I think that then translates into weaker policy as well, um, and and that in turn then. Um, I think leads to even more complacency because you know hasn't really changed all that much if you have weak policies in place. Um, but in the meantime, you're moving on with the other technologies that exist. Uh, so I think that that is a, a, a dangerous circle that we need to break through in some way. Um, I mean, how to do that? That's that's a big ask. I mean, I'm 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 pleased to see that at least now we have a bit of a discussion, at least in the UK, um, about insulating buildings. Um, you know, insulate Britain. You can we can discuss their methods um, uh, all day long. But I think if if anything, they highlight that there is a significant gap in policy terms, and um, it, it it needs to be addressed. You know, there needs to be a long term uh, program that is well funded for energy efficiency, and we need to move away. I think from this idea that you can um, invest in something and get a payback in 10, 15 years. And if it doesn't, if that doesn't work out, then you just don't do it. You know, these are buildings that will remain for decades, if not centuries uh, and upgrading them is something that we're not just doing for us to save a bit of money on our energy bills and, and make a profit and return on our investment, but it really is to future proof them for, you know, our children and, and grandchildren. Um, and, and that's what we leave them with. So I, I think energy efficiency um, and deep retrofits can provide much greater benefits than just the immediate sort of 10 to 15 year time horizon payback. Um, it, it goes far beyond that. And, and therefore it needs to be 
um, addressed differently, I think, than uh, some of the other technologies that perhaps have much shorter lifetimes. Absolutely. Uh, I, uh, I'm wondering as well whether you have concerns around affordability too, because we've got, um, um, looking at, at the energy crisis that's been brewing uh, over the last few weeks in particular, um, and and even looking at the the trend in Ireland where I'm based on on energy prices as we've as we've decarbonized electricity for instance um it hasn't coincided with a drop in electricity prices in, in fact the opposite has, has happened it's not been linear of course um and there are different reasons for it and, and uh like so Dr Peter Rickaby who writes for our magazine uh has talked about the need for and was on the interviewed on this podcast in fact a few weeks ago talking about the need for for tariff reform which seems to, who seems to be uh you know actually something government are government are looking at now but you know uh I suppose the, the concern uh I would have looking at looking at countries like the UK and looking at the kinds of incomes that pe- some of the most vulnerable people in society are on, um, uh, where you could be talking, I mean, it can be as low as 50, 60 pounds a week in some cases. Um, and uh, in substandard housing with uh, very high energy costs, I suppose the concern for me is that, is that um, a, a, a decarbonisation policy that doesn't take consideration of affordability for those people could in some cases actually exacerbate the problem and could cause uh, their energy poverty to to increase if you you know and, and you see you see at the same time governments having um certainly in the uk and ireland having uh fuel poverty policies but it feels sometimes like this, the circle isn't being squared and that there isn't necessarily a consideration of you know this kind of integrated kind of picture of of uh of the need to ensure that different policies work together in hand to to actually help you know lift people out of poverty um and uh and r- rather than exacerbate it is that is that an issue that you uh that, that you're that you are familiar with or concerned about as well very much so. Um, I mean, that, that it, it's a it's a big issue. This this topic of equity or affordability and fairness, and you know what's called the, the just transition uh, in in Europe. Um, this is something that we've done quite a bit of work on um, as an organisation, and we published a fairly major report um, on this last year, where we sort of looked at a whole range of issues, um, you know, from carbon pricing um, to funding. Um, you know, decarbonization via levies and energy bills, energy efficiency programs, et cetera. Um, so there's a whole range of, of areas that have a direct impact on affordability and on energy poverty directly. Uh, and in each of those areas, you can design policy in a way that alleviates energy poverty um, and actually helps people who are in these difficult situations. Or you can design policy in an opposite way, which uh, exacerbates energy poverty. Um, uh, and the devil is often in the detail. Um, you know, for example, you may um, uh, you know, design an energy efficiency program that's funded by a levy on energy bills, which is the case in um, about 16 uh, European countries that have programs like that called energy efficiency obligations on energy suppliers. But if you don't have an explicit program for low-income customers um, or you offer specific support for low-income customers, well, there is a risk that energy companies will simply seek out the lowest cost savings in order to comply with their targets and focus on um, those people who are able to pay, um, who are well off, 
Um, they tend to be in bigger properties, so you get more energy savings at the same time to deal with a single customer. Um, so that there's a risk that you essentially leave behind those customers um, who don't have the, the capital uh, and who, who don't um, uh, live in large enough properties to make it worth um, you know, their while. Uh, so that, that's that's why I think policy design is, is so important and where it really matters that uh, we design policies um, with low-income customers in mind and with energy poverty in mind. Absolutely. Um, related to this, is you know, it feels to me like um, there's not really much point us engaging in in any of these in these policy efforts unless we have uh, some degree of of understanding of of what the the net effect is, what the actual results are in, in real terms, and in the construction industry. We have a, a very unhealthy tendency to cut and run once a building is completed. There's, there tends to be very little uh, understanding of how the building is actually operating, you know, how the occupants engage with it, even very, very little engagement with, with, with occupants to, to teach them how to use the building. Perhaps even little understanding of, uh, uh, or little robustness to, to to the methodology to that, that that was used, or the or the, you know the assumptions underpinning the the, uh, the the energy efficiency, whether it's new builder or retrofit effort, um, you know the thermal comfort assumptions, the occupancy assumptions, and so on. When you've got standardized kind of uh, uh, calculation tools, standardized assumptions being made in the, in the calculation tools, um, is your do you have a sense that that is is that a concern for you? And do you have a sense that that's changing? Do you think that there's a, that there's a consideration now uh, within these within this kind of policy effort to look at not just throwing money at something and, and being seen to make an effort, but to actually kind of put the the, the systems in place to to understand uh, you know at a um, at a very detailed level what impact the 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 energy saving efforts in a particular building, for instance, are having on that actual building, on, on the actual energy from the building and the comfort and so on. Is, is that something that that, that you uh, that, that you have concern about, or that you, that you see progress being made on? Well, it, yeah, it doesn't play a significant role yet. Um, it's, it's probably uh, the, yeah, a fair answer. I mean, there are pilot projects where. Um, you know, this has been looked at, but um, at least in in Europe, um, it's it's neglected. You know, most of the government programs are designed around delivering specific measures that are installed uh, without proper um, you know, what is called ex post monitoring and verification. You know, after you've installed the measure, to then look at the meter readings and compare that with the situation before, uh, and look at other factors that might distort the um, consumption before and after. You know, the weather, occupancy, and things like that. Um, but that doesn't really happen um, uh, enough. Um, there are um, countries uh, outside of Europe where this is um, becoming a, a, a much more important topic. Uh, so look, for example, at California uh, in the US, where there's now a significant uh, chunk of, of spending on energy efficiency is devoted to so-called pay-for-performance programs. Uh, and what they do is they, they essentially um, reward not installing a specific measure, but they reward an outcome, which is in this case, it's a saving uh, of a unit of, of energy. Uh, and you need to be able to prove uh, that you indeed achieve that saving in order to get paid, which is very different from getting paid 
to just install a measure because you have no in, uh, interest in you know, making sure that measure actually performs according to specification. Um, and you have no interest in ensuring that the outcome you want to achieve, which is energy savings or carbon savings, is actually happening. Uh, so you can design programs in a way to do that. It requires um, you know, having sophisticated um, data analytics, sophisticated metering. Um, but as we move um, away from you know, combusting fossil fuels, um, we talked about electrification before um, uh, to, to an extent, towards using electricity, um, actually, the metering part becomes easier, um, and um, you know we now have the ability to analyze that data um, much more um, in a much more detailed way than in, in the past, much more sophisticatedly, and that's 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 a really uh, good step. I think there's also a second element to this that yeah, it will start to matter a lot more when we save electricity or energy. Um, and not just how much. Um, in the past, we've kind of looked at annual savings of programs. You know, that was an important metric. But you know, increasingly, it will be important when we save energy, when we avoid it, uh, rather than just the total. And that's simply because we have an, a higher share of variable renewables on the system, and it will be um, very important um, to you know, have flexibility uh, and to make sure we really target energy efficiency measures so that they avoid energy when the grid is still not clean and where we have a lot of carbon intensive generation on the system. Absolutely. Um, in that regard, uh, are, are you confident that we'll start to see more utilities um, you know, as we get the advent of, of, of smart metering coming in and so on? Are you confident we'll start to see more utilities uh, yeah. uh, kind of offering, empowering their consumers more uh, rather than just gathering data from people and their consumption by actually giving them the chance to vote with their feet and to, to, to kind of to to change their behavior with uh with variable tariffs for instance and how how sophisticated could could that get we've seen some initiatives in 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 Ireland recently with uh with Electric Ireland where they they trialed and uh started to introduce a kind of a heat pump tariff um but it's 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 a long way from a dynamic tariff it's still, it's progress i suppose um um, which, which is great to see, but you know, I, I suppose the the dream for me is you know is that um, you're in a situation where, as a consumer, you can choose with certain uh, uh, non-essential loads uh, to to delay them or to use them, uh, depending on the information you get back from uh, from your utility. Is that is that a science fiction, or is that some, something that's you're seeing actually happening out there? It's not science fiction at all. I mean, um, and there is. Um, a lively discussion about this in, in, in several European countries. Some have moved faster than others. Um, I mean, I can also maybe start with a, uh, with a, with a bad example of how not to do it. Um, and that this goes back um, probably at least a year, a year and a half uh, in Germany, where um, you know, there was a discussion whether the network companies, so the distribution grid operator, um, would be able to simply um, you know, switch people's um, electricity consumption off or reduce it, constrain it, um, without any benefit for the consumer. So you can you can see from the perspective of a network operator that could be quite attractive because you have a flexible um, load that you can manage, um, um, you know, regardless of what the co consumer preferences might be. Um, and and that it hasn't happened in the end. It was it was decided um, you know, against the implementation of that. Um, but it would essentially have given the control away um, to the utility. 
um, who would be able to quite significantly impact on, on, on um, in this case, it would be electric vehicle charging behavior of consumers by constraining uh, their charging during certain hours um, when it was convenient for them to do so without any benefit for the consumer. It doesn't so, sound um, like a great way to win over people. It, it's not a great way to, to win <laughs> I over can just see the, I can see the, uh, the, you know, I know how how uh, uh, angry some motorists can get as well. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of, um, of uh, for some reason, Michael Douglas's movie Falling Down comes to mind, but they're kind of road rage kind of, you know, uh, traffic scenario, how, how, how um, people, pe- how emotional fe- people feel about their cars at times. So I can imagine that, that, that <laughs> I, can, I can see the uh, the mobs with, 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 uh, with, with pitchforks and so on coming for, heading to the, to, to, to the regulator's office in that case, you know. Uh, well, there was a lot of backlash against it. The, um, the, the, the main consumer organization and also the Car Manufacturers Association uh, wrote a letter um, to um, uh, you know, the, the energy minister and several other ministers. And they essentially said, if this goes ahead, uh, it could really um, uh, you know, make it a lot harder to adopt electric vehicles in, in Germany because it, it, it interferes with um, um, uh, you know, people wanting to charge their vehicles when they want to charge them. So that, that gets us to kind of the, 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 other, the opposite approach, which is um, offering incentives and enable, um, enabling people to take advantage of providing flexibility services and get rewarded for it. That's essentially what a time of use tariff does um, or time varying tariff uh, does where you know, if, you, if you decide to charge your, your, your car or run your heat pump uh, or use any other electricity uh, during certain hours when it's cheaper, well, you have a cost saving there. And when you decide to use um, that equipment when um, uh, there's a lot of demand on the system already, you might be paying more. Um, um, and, and that's fine because you then kind of compensate for the extra cost. But what we see already from you know, uh, data that's been gathered from customers who are on these variable tariffs is that there's clear evidence, and not just from Europe, but also from outside of Europe, um, that those customers on variable tariffs, they will change their um, behavior. They will start using electricity when it's cheaper. And uh, it's not rocket science. You know, it can be done with very simple tariffs where you, know, you provide maybe a window uh, during the night when you have um, a lack of demand, but still quite a lot of electricity on the system where electricity is cheaper. Uh, so we've got several tariffs already um, that, that do this. Uh, or you have something more sophisticated um, you know, where um, maybe the, the, the price is, is, is you know, changes every half an hour and is even coupled to wholesale market prices. Uh, again, these kinds of tariffs already exist in some places. Uh, and um, yeah, they can offer even more significant savings because they're more sophisticated, you know, they're more granular. Um, so there are different ways of designing them. What's important in all of this is some customer protection. You know, we've seen that um, in Texas in February when electricity prices went through the roof. And for those customers on a variable tariff, um, uh, in some cases where there was no price cap at all, you would find yourself with very high bills. Um, you, you, that, that is clearly not something we want to impose on consumers. So there needs to be some kind of cap and some protection um, for customers to enable them to benefit, but not to um, to be, you know, carry all of the risk. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to pick up quick, briefly on um, one of the points you raised earlier, because it really chimed with me when you were, you were talking about um, uh, the possibility of uh, in a changing climate 
of, uh, you know, I guess the demand of the profile of energy demand in our buildings changing, you know, uh, some are starting to become an issue for, for, uh, for cooling. And certainly we've been privy to some extraordinary cases in, in, in the UK and Ireland of, uh, very high temperatures being achieved in summer in, in, um, in unheated, unoccupied buildings. Um, and, uh, you know, up to, I suppose, without wanting to sensationalize uh, what, what I think would be life-threatening conditions in, in, in certain circumstances. Um, and uh, I just, I wonder, is, is, this, is this a concern for you? Because, you know, a, uh, the, I suppose where I'd be coming from in this is that uh, um, there's, a, there's a risk you can run into with, um, if you don't adopt maybe evidence-based approaches to energy efficiency, and if you, uh, if you aren't, if you are operating in an industry that isn't paying particularly close attention to how buildings are actually being used and how they're actually performing, uh, that energy efficiency efforts in some cases could, you know, the poorly designed energy efficiency efforts could exacerbate problems. I'm thinking, for instance, there was a, a documentary a few years ago on uh, this uh, amazing kind of pioneering Earthship uh, architect in the States called Mike Reynolds. Great stuff and, you know, uh, great pioneering work. But he was talking with great pride about uh, a passive solar Earthship that he built uh, where there was a visiting writer whose uh, typewriter had melted <laughs> from, uh, from the heat of the sun coming through the window. You know, um, so uh, it's a, an extreme example, obviously, but uh, this is this is something you you um, you know. Certainly, I, I feel that it's not uh, being given much attention um, within the within the construction industry or, or from a policy perspective in Ireland um, and the UK. Um, do you share those concerns, and do you think this is something that that uh, that we should be you know placing front and center in our in our kind of in the policy discussion too? Yes, I do. I mean, <clears throat> you know, when you look at most building uh, codes, building regulation, it's designed um, to uh, you know, in, ensure energy performance for cold weather. Um, that, that's what it's designed for. Um, you, you, you know, you see uh, new extensions being um, uh, built, you know, with a lot of glass, um, which is great during the winter. You know, it's it's you get the solar gain, and that's that's really good. But no consideration what to do in the summer. And if you have very well insulated building with a lot of glass, um, then you know, and no shading, um, uh, it, it's not rocket science to work out that, that that building might overheat. And once it's hot, and once once the, the you know the, the the building fabric is warmed up, it's very difficult to cool it down again. Um, and and the, the solution seems relatively simple to either build with less glass or have external shading that you can use uh, when when there's a lot of sunshine and it's hot. Um, but we're not doing that. Uh, you know, building codes are still set up, um, at least in Northern Europe, for sure, um, to design buildings um, you know, to um, keep the warmth in uh, and they're designed for cold weather. They're not designed for uh, heat waves and, and, and very hot weather. Uh, but increasingly, we're going to see heat waves um, and we're going to see periods where some of these properties will be unbearably hot, you know, where it's consistently um, sort of 27, 28, 29 degrees uh, in, indoors. And that, that is not something that uh, most people find comfortable. So I think what we will then see if we don't mitigate against that, um, we will then see a spike, and we have seen this already in some places, of um, cheap air conditioning units being bought, you know, mobile air conditioning units that you just plug in uh, and then trying to kind of keep keep the building um, at, a, at a sort of bearable temperature level, uh, which then in, in, in turn causes a massive issue in the electricity system 
think in 2006, New York um, suffered from blackouts because people uh, were just ramping up their air conditioning to an extent never seen before because it got so hot. Uh, and we, we could see the same, I think, in, in Europe, you know, where we don't have a history of air conditioning. Actually, very few buildings, um, domestic buildings, have air conditioning. Um, you know, more than 90% uh, don't, whereas in the US, more than 90% do have air conditioning. Uh, but we could see that changing, right? If you if if you if you can't get the temperature down at some point, um, you might consider just buying one of these mobile units. And um, believe me, they're not the most efficient units, and and also you know they cause a massive problem for the electricity system that would be entirely avoidable by just um, you know designing buildings more carefully, building in natural shading, and avoiding um, the uh, you know the need for cooling in the first place. Well, absolutely. I mean, I just think the, the examples I always cite when I'm talking about this uh, is, you know, many Irish people who visited the continental Europe, who visit continental Europe um, during the summer in countries like Germany, for instance, it's it's habitual. Uh, maybe these lessons are being unlearned, I don't know, with new building design. Uh, to this cultural sort of, um, uh, well, what would you describe it as this this learned behavior of uh you know where you have a building with external shutters um you uh, you 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 close the building up before you head off to work in the morning and then you open it up when you come home in the evenings um and that principle you know the the, the frustrating thing here I, sp I suppose is that there's so many there are some extraordinary uh simple principles here that 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 can be can be so effective i should say as well jan i'm going to send you after this um interview um a link to uh, a study we published an article about um on a building in london uh a southwest facing single aspect apartment building in, in camden which was having significant overheating problems uh when it was under construction the the contractors were complaining of materials warping and cracking uh when they were on site um, and uh it was closed up uh after it was finished um and the the developer who's going to be letting the, the the apartments out um uh opened it after five weeks during the summer and it was a hot spell and this there was a stench of sewage because all the water in the toilets had evaporated um so he um he he got some monitoring students, uh, a PhD student at uh, London South Bank University, to do a, a, a monitoring study on the building. Um, and there was one day where the a room that was kept in its original condition after the works were finished, um, uh, the outdoor air temperature peaked at I think twenty oh twenty eight. But it was under 29 degrees. It was a hot day, but not crazy hot outside uh, for the external air temperature. Um, and the indoor air temperature, and this is an unoccupied, unheated building, the operative room temperature peaked at 47 and a half degrees, um, which is just, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's terrifying stuff. Um, and yet um, the study also showed that that external blinds um, on another identical room in the same building, uh, same aspect and so on, at the same time was almost 20 degrees cooler. Just because of the presence of external Venetian blinds, you know. So, in other words, it kind of rams home the point that that there are measures here we can use that, that are very low tech and very simple uh, to address these things. The one final point I wanted to to, to touch on with you, if I may, because uh, I've, I've got uh, my my eight year old uh, boy's birthday party to head off to now, and he's going to start coming in and screaming at me uh, the joys of working from home uh, if I don't join in soon. Um, I suppose it's to ask, are you expecting to see major progress coming out of COP26? Are you expecting this to, to lead to meaningful policies and initiatives to, to expedite energy efficiency in buildings in the near term? 
Well, it's a hard question, I, and um, I, I'm not going to make a prediction here, but I think what um, certainly has changed is the discussion about the ambition level. Um, and, and by that, I mean um, we no longer talk about um, you know, keeping warming to a certain degree or reducing emissions by 80%, but it's really about re eliminating emissions altogether. Yeah, it's, this is about reducing emissions to zero. Uh, this is about um, climate neutrality. Um, and and that's, that's, a, that's a big change, I think, in the discussion. Um, and we've seen a lot of countries come up with their own net zero strategies um, over the last um, you know, year or two. Um, with, with their own climate neutrality strategies. The European Commission has launched the Green Deal. So yeah, this, the conversation has changed. Uh, and I think that there's, there's now more urgency, whether or not that will lead um, to an ambitious international agreement of some, some kind that succeeds the Paris Agreement, I'm, I'm not to say. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the, the policy and implementation always happens at national level. Um, and and, it, and that, that's where really the, the action happens uh, and we already have, um, you know, uh, pretty ambitious climate goals, and we keep missing them, um, uh, and we're not on track. Um, uh, to what extent COP can make a big difference in that? Um, I'm not so sure, but I think it will help socialize this idea that we need to reduce emissions much faster and um, to zero, um, uh, and and that will in turn, I think, hopefully lead to more ambitious policy, uh, also domestically. Um, but having been to the last COP, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not so sure um, that COP itself will uh, provide that impetus for domestic policy implementation and ensure that we have better policies for buildings in particular. Uh, I think that's still something that needs to be um, pushed for and decided at, at the national level. But clearly, it would be a good signal yeah, if, if COP um, was coming out with a clear way forward and agreement that is strengthening what we already had um, agreed in Paris in 2015. Well, well, I hope, yeah, I, I you know, we, we were all rooting for uh, for this process to kind of deliver as, as you know, the, the kind of progress we need, but I have uh, similar, similar concerns and I don't, I try not to be too jaded and cynical, you know, um, um, and, uh, I, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's my, uh, my inner despot, I think will be, will be, uh, um, kind of fretting over, over, over this and, uh, and, you know, uh, hoping for the best, but, but we'll just, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But thank you so much, Jan, uh, for, I would love to talk to you all day, but I'll be throttled by my eight-year-old if I don't, which is a, a natural way of, of curtailing things. Um, it's it's been great having you on, um, and uh, I, you know I'll, I'll certainly be paying a lot more attention to your work and to the work of the Regulatory Assistance Project. I think I think uh, you know you're doing really important work, and and the world really needs it right now. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure.